Good morning, my name is Gail Kay, and I get to share some thoughts with you this morning about our next section of Acts, which is the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5. And I'm just going to pray quickly before we start. Father God, I just thank you um, for this community. I thank you for this time together. pray that you would just get me out of your way, that you might um, speak to us this morning. God, I thank you that I can trust that your word does not return empty, God, that you, um, you, what you will becomes, God. I thank you for that. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, so before we start talking about this section of Acts, I'm going to tell you a story about when I was a young mom of a five- and two-year-old, and we're thinking a lot about summer. I know people were talking about their favorite parts of the summer. Um, but I had an amazing summer. And um, I think my five-year-old in particular at the time, Jake, had an amazing summer. We, if there was an enriching activity in the world, we did it. We picked strawberries. We picked blueberries. We made preserves. We collected crabs on the beach. We swam. We fished. Um, we uh, went to the Beardsley Zoo every week. We went to the Peabody Museum. I mean, it was, we made homemade Play-Doh. Whatever you could think of, we did it. And it was a great summer. We went to a family wedding. Jake got to like ride with the bridal party in the limo and take part in a toast. So you can imagine, I was very, very excited when it was time for kindergarten orientation to meet his teacher. And we went to his teacher and she bent down at Jake's level and said, Jake, tell me what you did this summer. And I actually thought, this is going to be a glorious moment for me because everyone standing around is going to know that I am an amazing mom because my son did all these great things. What nugget was Jake K going to pull from all those activities to share with his teacher? So he thought for a second and said, well, I really didn't do anything this summer except play video games. And I think my heart stopped and I thought, this woman is going to think I'm horrible. But, you know, she gave me, she could see I was horrified, and so she gave me, like, a little nod, and she tried again. Well, Jake, surely you did something else this summer besides play video games. And he thought and said, well, yeah, I did. I drank wine in a limo. And that was the end of Jake's introduction to his kindergarten teacher. Um, and I was crushed. My big moment had turned into nothing. Um, and in this story, there's a couple, and, and they're ready for their big moment. And uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't work out too well for them either in this story. In fact, it works out um, much more horrible than having your teacher think that you let your son play video games all day. So we're going to just start with this section of Acts, and I'm going to um, read it right now. This starts in Acts 4.32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Uh, this section continues. About three hours later, Sapphira comes in. Peter has this very similar exchange with her, and she breathes her last and is also carried out um, by, met, by the same men. So as Tom was asking us if we were willing to share our thoughts on some portion of Acts, I said, sure, I would love to. And in my mind, I thought, I just hope it's not the Ananias and Sapphira story. But it, of course it was. That meant that um, God wanted to teach me something about Ananias and Sapphira. Um, because it's so shocking. They offer money to the church. They lie, and they are struck dead. Um, you know, it's, it's so shocking because it isn't God's typical MO. Um, you know, this is a church that's just abounding in grace and mercy and love, and then we see um, this act. And because it's so shocking, God obviously wants us to really pay attention to it. Um, as Tom mentioned a few, several weeks ago when we started the book of Acts, he talked about how there's a lot of pieces of Acts that uh, kind of replicate stories from the Old Testament or are fulfillment of stories of the Old Testament, like the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples, um, God appearing in flames and a cloud to the Israelites, God appearing in flame over the apostles. And there were, there were many, many others that Tom mentioned. But this story is no different. Um, in fact, the last time that God struck two relatives dead is in the Old Testament. It's in a book called Leviticus. It's not a book that we talk about too often. I don't think Tom's planning a teaching series on Leviticus anytime too soon. Um, it's in the Torah, in the first five books. It's a book of Moses, and this book is called the Book of the Law. Um, it was around the laws and the rules about engaging with God in his presence in the tabernacle. Uh, kind of the theme of Leviticus as a whole is be holy as I am holy. Um, so in Leviticus, we find that God is going to make, by grace, is going to make his presence, um, he is going to be present among the people. But he's so holy, so other than us, so completely pure, without fault, that man can't just interact with God without uh, this set of rules. And Aaron's family is ordained to be the priests, and they kind of take charge of these rules. Um, there's you know, animal sacrifices, burning of incense, purity rituals, and the list goes on. But they're things that man had to do in order to be in contact with God through his, his grace. Um, so we're going to read a story from Leviticus chapter 10 that is going to sound very, very similar to our story about Ananias and Sapphira. It's, it's only five verses, so I'm just going to read the whole thing. Um, Aaron's sons... Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, what, this is what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. 
Moses summoned Mishael and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. So here we have um, these two sons of Aaron, and they take the right container, and they put the right incense in it, and um, they light it, and all the material pieces are exactly as they're supposed to be, and yet it's not pleasant smelling to God. And only uh, man can't see it. It's all, it's all the same materials, but God is able to know their heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart, and he sees that the sacrifice is not pleasing to him. Um, he understands. There's lots of theories about what exactly was unpleasant to God about that from the context clues, um, but really, you know, only God knows. The point is that it wasn't um, authentic or sincere. Um, so I found this chart that I'm going to put up, and it, I stole it from a blogger who writes a blog called Torah Matters. But it's just a really nice um, division of how, or shows how these two passages really run parallel to each other. So in both Acts and in Leviticus, an offering is brought, and it's rejected. In both, they're struck down suddenly. In both, their family members, one spouses, others brothers, there's a conversion of a field to money, and there's a conversion of incense to fire. Both times, the bodies are immediately carried out, one in shroud, one in their tunics, and the event really startles the community. Um, so the other thing that, that's not really on this chart, but that in Leviticus, God's doing something new. He's coming to, to dwell with his people. Um, God is saying, I'm doing something new, and I'm I'm going to show you that it's um, important. And these two offer sacrifices not pleasing, and he, they drop dead. Now in Acts, we find, and Tom's mentioned this, right? Now the Holy Spirit is dwelling in us. There's no ta we are the tabernacle. God is doing something new again. It's a new temple. It's inside of us. God, the Holy Spirit, is dwelling in us. And he wants us to know it's no small matter. It's not to be taken lightly, um, that he requires truth that he will not tolerate lying and pretense and hypocrisy. They have no place with him. Um, last week, we heard from Tom that the disciples were compelled to obey God and not man. But here we have Ananias and Sapphira, and it's the exact opposite. They care really about the opinion of the early church. Um, if they had cared about God, they would, they would know God, would, God knows we're lying. But they, in front of people, they wanted to seem like they were giving all of this money for some reason. They wanted to be seen as givers or influencers. Maybe they wanted to fast-track being leaders in the church. Again, there's all kinds of ideas. Maybe they just saw Barnabas get all this praise and adoration, and, and they wanted to be like him. Um, they weren't under any obligation to give all of their money. Peter acknowledges that. He says to them, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? They could have given half. They could have said, here are half the proceeds, but they, but they lied. They said, here's everything. And that was the problem. Um, God knew their heart. In Leviticus, God acts alone. In the temple, he sees that this is not a pleasant offering, and he takes matters uh, into his own hands. And now... God is, is revealing this to Peter. It's not Peter's wisdom. He didn't hear it on the street that they didn't give all of the money. 
he, the Holy Spirit within him, reveals to him that this is a lie, and he's really grieved over it. Uh, I, I think when I read Peter, I hear that he sounds heartbroken for them. Uh, Peter is no stranger to pretense, right? Peter, we remember, he denied Jesus three times because it would have made him look bad. He really understands the weight of deceiving God and not serving him above others. You know, he probably might be thinking, I just talked about that last week, right? Remember when I talked about how horrible that was? And yet, you still didn't listen. They probably worshiped together, ate together, prayed together. These were people he was in community with. They had inside jokes together. Um, but through the Holy Spirit, Peter has supernatural wisdom. He speaks for God. He says, you have not lied to man, but to God. Pretense to others truly is lying to God. Um, and we know that, you know, Peter received grace, and we see God extending grace to so many people as they come before him and, and recognize in humility their, their wrongdoing. Um, so, again, that it filled the church with fear. Not, they weren't scared, but this act really filled them with awe and um, holy fear that they respected God. So, the, and it says right after that that they continued to grow. The church continued to grow. So, practically, for us, um, how does this story impact us? Well, it's clear in this passage, God does not like and will not tolerate lying, pretense, hypocrisy. And so, let's not do that. How do we move away from that? How do we make sure that we are not falling into the same trap that Ananias and Sapphira fell into? Um, and I think it's no secret that it's really the components that we talk about all the time in loving God and loving others is that first we look up to God and we need to come before Jesus um, in prayer, in silence, with his word and have him do a work, work in us to remove these things from us. Um, we no longer have rituals and animal sacrifices like the original temple or tabernacle. Now we're, we are the living sacrifice. It, it says in Romans that, you know, we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, not to conform, but be transformed. So now it, it, it is so parallel to the tabernacle. Now the Holy Spirit is residing in us, and we become the sacrifice. So how do we know? How do we sort out our motives and make sure that we're not lying and being um, inauthentic? I'm going to put a verse up here from Jeremiah. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. So without God, we really can't come to an understanding of our motives um, and why we do certain things and what needs to change. It, it requires an act of God, just like the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter about Ananias and Sapphira in our own lives. Only God um, can really help us understand our own hearts. So um, I was reading a book recently, and it was saying that pretense and lying are so ingrained in our culture that it goes unrecognized if we don't stop and notice. I think that's so true. It's just a part of our everyday life. We just accept that it's the, the way it is. Um, 
when we go back to the beginning of this passage and look at like how community was going well, it said they were of one heart and one mind. And the only way you can all be of one heart and one mind is if individually you are um, placing yourself in God's presence, being still and looking up. Um, we really can't lean in to community successfully if we are not looking up. Um, I'm going to read another quote here. It's from Henry Nouwen, and it says, Without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We do not take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside some time to be with God and listen to him. Jesus modeled this for us. He got up. He spent time alone with God. And I feel like some of you might be tuning out right now because you're like, I haven't done that, and I'm not going to start doing that. <laughs> but I'm just going to beg you to think about it because I know it's hard. It is so hard. Um, so I'm in a little small group of women, and we pray for each other and study the Bible together and hold each other accountable. And do you know how much time they're holding me to be accountable, to be quiet before I read my Bible and pray? Two minutes, two minutes. <laughs> and it is so hard for me to be still and quiet for two minutes. Um, I'm an introvert, so you might think, well, it's easy. I like to be, I like to be alone. But my internal noise level is so high. I think Tom mentioned well, several months ago, he talked about drunk monkey brain or something. For me, I envision it like herding cats. I have so many thoughts going around in my mind that it's very hard for me to be silent. In fact, when I, when I try to be silent, before I read and pray, I set a, a timer on my watch for three minutes. I give myself like an extra minute to just like get in my seat and get ready to be quiet. And I'm not kidding you, this week I set my timer for three minutes, sat down, it was quiet, remembered something I had to do, and I got up and I started, I found myself at my desk typing and my timer went off. And I thought, I did not even remember for two minutes that I was sitting still. I could not stay sitting still. Um, and I definitely go up and down with that. Some days are easier than others, but that day was, was shocking to me that I just, I couldn't even do that for, for two minutes. So I understand that it's hard to be quiet before God, but he's telling us we have to be still before him in order to uh, transform into his likeness and to really eliminate um, pretense, hypocrisy, lying, these things that we just do all the time. I've had some startling quarantine moments. I'm sure you have too just thinking about what I do when I'm in public, which that amount of time has diminished so greatly, and what I do when I'm alone. I mean, all of my friends and coworkers were all joking about how we are in yoga pants all day, or we only put on makeup if we have a live Skype chat, or uh, I found myself the other day kind of just like changing my computer so that people saw the clean part of my house or the nicer part of my house. And we all do, and we kind of joke about it, but I think, as I've been spending some time alone with God, is that there are some real layers in those actions to be peeled back and real um, pretense that he wants to reveal to me. So I think when we really take these thoughts captive, God wants to do a bigger work in us. So we read Jeremiah. We, were, we need God in the mix in order to reveal our heart and our motives. Only he can do that. The other piece is putting our thoughts and our heart and mind in front of Scripture. And I'm going to put another verse up. This is from Hebrews chapter 4. 
and I'm sure many of you have heard it before, it says, for the word of God is active, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And when we put our thoughts and attitudes and we lay it next to scripture, God reveals things to us. And he really can move in our lives. And if we don't do that, he's not going to be able to reveal those things to us. So we need God, we need his word, and then as he reveals these things to us, there's a call to repentance, right? To change those things that we are doing that are unpleasing to God. That he wants us to to move to holiness, to be holy as he is holy. This is a a verse I'm going to share that has just been rattling around in my brain for a few months now. I've been thinking about it a lot. I've been spending a lot of time reading about rest and sabbath and quiet and stillness and this kind of brought some of these things together for me and it's from isaiah 30 it says in repentance and rest is your salvation in quietness and trust is your strength but you would have none of it and that really resonates with me i i don't like to do the hard work of listening holding my thoughts and actions against scripture, letting God do his work, it's, it's hard. Um, repenting is difficult, but the result is rest, right? Quietness makes us trust more. Peter just gave a sermon a uh, chapter and a half earlier where he said, in rep- in, when we repent, that God is going to refresh us. He's going to give us a time of refreshment. So it's hard work, but there is refreshment at the end of it. I thought, I was running, and by running, I mean run walking. I don't want to fool anyone into thinking that I was really running for long distances. <laughs> I was run walking, and it, I was, it was ugly. I was out of breath, gasping. The sun was beating on me. I was so sweaty and tired. And it was one of those days where it was just steamy and hot, and the sun was right out, but it had recently rained. So I was going to run under all these pine trees that still were just covered in water. It was so beautiful. You could see all the water drops on it. And as I ran under the trees, I just smacked all the branches so all the, <laughs> all the water came down on me. And it was so refreshing. But that would not have been refreshing to me if I had not been working hard and gotten sweaty and out of breath. So I think God wants to refresh us and he wants to give us true rest, but it requires the hard work of seeking him, seeking his face. So we repent and we move on. Uh, we, we, we put our life together in such a way that allows us to do that. And then, after we do that, we bring our authentic self into the community and we bless the community around us when we've done that. You know, time alone is necessary to develop authentic community. We cannot lean in the way that we are meant to if we are not looking up. And there's a older book called Life Together about Christian community, and I'm going to read one quote from that. This quote says, every member serves the whole body, either to its health or to its destruction. This is no mere theory, it is a spiritual reality. One who returns to the Christian family of fellowship after fighting the battle of the day brings with him the blessings of his aloneness. And that's what we're really called to do. Did 
Ananias and Sapphira have a rule of life that put them in front of God to test their motives, and I don't know, and we, we don't know, but um, I would think maybe not. The best that God is calling us to make sure that we are pursuing him with, with all our heart, soul, and mind. Um, I know several months ago, a lot of us committed to reading um, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It was a devotional, and that provided a lot of people with a great means of looking up. He, I'm in the middle of this second, this is a shameless plug for the second one, which is Emotionally Healthy Relationships, which talks about this very thing of spending time with God and then bringing that into good relationships and healthy relationships. But uh, there's actually a devotional in here dedicated to the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and he just had a really interesting take on, on this whole story. And he, he says that when we walk in truth and follow Jesus who's in truth, our walk with God comes alive and false layers fall off us as our true self in Christ is awakened. But this is what got me. With nothing to hide, our stress levels and anxieties decrease. I thought, so true, right? When we uh, are able to come to each other authentically and in truth, we never have to fear being found out because there's nothing to be found out. We are, um, we are representing Jesus with each other in the spirit of truth. So um, I'm going to close us in prayer here, but I would just say this, that the community that's empowered by the Holy Spirit, like we see all through Acts, is authentic first and foremost, um, that God makes it very clear he does not want us to engage in hypocrisy, pretense, and lying, and that we have to constantly test our own motives before God. And that the, the power of that church was that they were of one heart and one mind, and the only way we will do that is really to fix our eyes on Jesus. And when we come together at Crossroads, we will be of one heart and one mind, like the early church in Acts, and really be truly unstoppable. So I'm just going to pray for us right now. Jesus, I thank you so much for this community. I thank you for all the authentic men and women um, in this community that bless me. God, I pray that we would truly fix our eyes on you and our um, make it a part of our everyday to fix our eyes on you, God, that we might be a community that is of one heart and one mind chasing after you, chasing after the same goal. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.